The book we have before us uh, for this portion of the morning show is called The Conversation. And I love the title of this book, and I love the book itself uh, because it addresses something that can be exquisitely difficult and yet so incredibly important. The conversation that we need to have with our loved ones about the end of life. And it's not a conversation, uh, as our author points out, so much about death and about dying as it is about living and about trying to safeguard the quality of a loved one's life right up to the end of life. Unfortunately, uh, in many, many cases, all kinds of decisions get made, sometimes rather inadvertently, which in fact very seriously uh, undermine the quality of one's life as one suffers through, for instance, uh, a terminal illness of, of, of one kind or another. And if no conversation has ever taken place about what uh, that loved one's wishes in fact are, about what sort of uh, interventions or measures they, they would want to have taken, if no such conversation has taken place, then by default, all kinds of sort of shop-worn practices uh, come into play almost automatically. And it can be a, 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 an absolutely tragic scenario and, and a needlessly tragic scenario. I am so happy about this book which has been written that addresses the need to have uh, such a conversation with one's loved ones. Uh, the author is a physician himself, uh, Dr. Uh, Angelo Valandis. Uh, he is a researcher at Harvard Medical School and co-founder of Advanced Care Planning Decision, which is a uh, a nonprofit organization that, that really devotes itself to encouraging these kind of conversations. And uh, uh, this uh, lovely new book is uh, published by Bloomsbury. And Dr. Uh, Angela Valandis, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. And I do congratulate you on a, a, a marvelous job with, with, with this book. And we should mention, I wish we were on television or in some way this was visual so I could just hold up the book. It's, it's not a formidable book in terms of length. And, uh, and I think it's, it, it's a mistake to present somebody with a, you know, a 500 page book that, uh, that no one in the right mind would, would, would sort of feel equal to reading on a topic like this. It's a modest sized book and yet packed with all kinds of really fine, um, observations. One of the, uh, primary formats is that it is sort of built upon uh, the experiences of seven seriously ill patients, uh, each of whose story is uh, a bit different, and yet each uh, sort of plays into this very same issue. Talk for a moment about your decision to create the book in this way, and uh, and to what extent it, it was a, so maybe a matter of difficulty in terms of of evoking the real-life experiences of, of, of actual patients. Absolutely. So the book consists of seven patients that I've personally cared for, and I detail their end-of-life experience, which hinged on whether or not they had a discussion with either their providers or their families about what was important to them. So I talk about good cases, but also bad cases of times when patients received medical care that if they were more informed about, they probably would never have wanted. You know, whether it's a patient with advanced Alzheimer's disease, uh, a, a grandmother who never told her, her daughters or her grandchildren 
what was important to her, about what sort of things she would and would not want if she were no longer able to communicate with them, but also about cases where patients actually start the process of asking those important questions and telling their loved ones what's important to to them. So it's part memoir, but it's also part how-to. So towards the end of the book, I actually give people a a how-to on how they can protect themselves from a healthcare system that has been designed to do everything. Hmm. And you're absolutely right. It was written in a conversational style and uh, in a way that I like to say, if I gave this to my parents, they would love to read it. Not too short, not too long, just enough to talk about what I consider one of the most important conversations in our life. Hmm. One line jumps out at me in particular, or haunts me, I guess I should say. This is in the introduction of the book. You write this, the conversation stems from my belief that one toxic side effect of the extraordinary progress that has been made in medical technology is the assault of medical interventions at the very end of life. I don't think I've ever heard that more persuasively phrased, that idea that that medical interventions can be an assault in a way. And of course, at the time, in the moment, those administering them and uh, and, and the loved ones sort of green lighting them, uh, probably that's the last thing they would think of. And yet, I think enough of us know enough about this to realize that, in fact, that's probably a very appropriate way to think about it. Absolutely. You know, we live in one of the most expensive healthcare systems in the world where extraordinary things are possible, but we also live in a healthcare system that has some of the worst deaths in the entire world. We've designed a healthcare system where the assumption is do everything. And so doctors are put in a very uncomfortable situation. We assume that the patient wants everything done unless someone tells us to stop. And in a system where we don't have conversations, where we don't ask patients what's important to them, that means we do these batteries, a blitz of medical interventions that if you actually just ask people, would you want some of these interventions in an advanced illness, most people tell us no, but we just don't stop and slow down and have those very difficult conversations. And so, yes, I do think that it's, it's one of the worst side effects of modern medicine is this assault of these aggressive interventions that often have very little benefit in patients with a serious illness. Right. I appreciate the fact that your book seems written for both ordinary people who find themselves maybe caught up in, in, in unfortunate situations and, and, and play a role in all this, but my sense is that this book is also written for doctors to read and uh, as, a, as a way for doctors to rethink some of their own practices, some of their own attitudes. For one, for, for one thing, at one point you say doctors like to tackle prog- problems and fix them. And it is truly amazing what modern medicine has achieved in a re- relatively brief span of time. And you go on to mention several different issues in which now there are interventions that can make a real difference. Then you say the tougher issue, however, is when to recognize that the small fixes do not change the larger picture or to recognize that fixing specific problems may not fix the whole patient. I've never really stopped to think about that, but I suspect that's really, really true, that it's 
only human for a doctor to go after every problem that seems fixable and and the typical loved one uh, wants that to happen as well. And yet there can be a very serious consequence if that approach is followed sort of unthinkingly or or past the point where it really makes sense for the overall well-being of the patient in question. Absolutely. Look, we train our doctors for about 10 years, four years of medical school and then many years of residency training and fellowship training. And what are we training them to do? Interventions, to learn chemistry, organic chemistry, biochemistry, to learn to be proficient at these technical skills. But we don't train them to be master communicators. We don't train them to reflect on when to use or not to use this, these skills that we're teaching them. You know, one of the amazing things that I've experienced over the last month since the book's been out are these emails from doctors saying, who have read the book and tell me, wow, you know, I, I just haven't thought of it like that. I haven't stopped. I've just been doing things because that's what we were taught to do. You know, by the time I finished residency, I was quizzed and tested on whether I can do about five, five to ten different procedures, CPR, lumbar punctures, paracentesis. But no one ever asked me, can you actually talk to a patient? Can you talk to someone about care at the end of life? And so we're training our physicians to be technicians. It's time that we train them to be uh, humanistic doctors. It's not surprising that we have this healthcare system where people are not honored and respected at the end of life when we're producing technicians. It's time that we produced more holistic doctors, doctors who actually care to listen and hear the patient's story. One of the things you point out is that in so many cases, when uh, a patient is admitted to a hospital, they are cared for by hospitalists, <laughs> and, and that's what you are. And uh, you are obviously a, a very caring doctor, but by and large, you are caring for patients that in it, probably most cases are complete strangers to you. Uh, unlike, uh, for instance, the relationship they might have with their primary care physician, perhaps who has been with them for years, maybe decades. Uh, and, and I suppose that underscores the importance of having conversations with patients because uh, otherwise you don't know anything about who they are, uh, the life they have lived, and, and what they might want uh, as their life comes to a close. You're absolutely right. I am a complete stranger to the vast majority of patients that I admit to the hospital. They've never seen me, and I have never seen them. So it is a really tough conversation when all of a sudden we have to talk about, if you're critically ill, about what's important to you. And if no one, if your primary care provider or if your oncologist, your specialist, has never started this conversation with you, then you're hearing these questions for the first time. You know, hospitalists now account for the overwhelming majority of, of health care delivered in our hospitals. Almost every metropolitan area in America is taken care of in the hospital system. Patients are taken care of by hospitalists. So this is an urgent issue. And I hope that by the time people read the end of the book uh, that they're outraged. I hope that's the feeling people have. It's outrageous that we allow so much of this end-of-life care to happen in our country, but this is the reality. And so people need to take back their health care. And as part of the book, we have a YouTube video uh, that people can help empower themselves. It's five minutes long. It goes over the questions you need to ask yourself 
and uh, what your medical options are. It's at theconversationbook.org. Hmm. And what's important for us to also acknowledge is that, uh, in a sense, we're talking about at least two different conversations that are really important and that tend not to happen enough. One is the importance of conversation between doctor and patient, and of course, conversations that need to happen even before that situation arises, conversations amongst loved ones, particularly conversations preferably without uh, a looming crisis uh, in the midst. Conversations, frank and honest and loving conversations about these really important matters. Absolutely. People should be having these conversations when they're feeling great, when they're surrounded by their loved ones at the Thanksgiving dinner or at a Sunday dinner. Uh, We should not be having these conversations when you're critically ill, it's three in the morning, you're in the emergency room vomiting, and this is the first time that someone's asking you what's important to you and what your hopes and fears are about medical care. You know, one thing I, I tell people is go ahead and start this process at home with your loved ones, and then go ahead and use your iPad, your tablet, or your iPhone and record the conversation and email it to everyone, your doctor, your healthcare system, you know, one day in the future, we'll be able to upload these videos, but at least you're not just filling out some paper document that to a physician might not mean uh, a lot because I don't know if you understood what you were filling out. But if I see a video and I hear your voice, it's really helpful to me to understand who you are, especially when you're critically ill. Hmm. We're talking about the book called The Conversation, A Revolutionary Plan for End-of-Life Care, written by Dr. Angelo E. Valendis. Dr. Valendis, one of the things I really appreciate about this book is how woven through it are these real-life stories from actual patients that uh, with whom you've cared. And, and I'll say parenthetically that often I don't think that format works particularly well uh, if, if it's done carelessly. I think you've done just the opposite. Uh, you've treated their experiences uh, with great sensitivity and, and written about them in, in such a way that it is genuinely helpful for us to be introduced to these people and to learn more about what they experienced. Uh, what sort of transaction was involved between you and the families of these seven patients who figure so prominently in the book in terms of telling their story? And did you change certain details or certain names uh, in order to ensure their privacy? Um, um, tell us a little bit about how you handled that. Absolutely. Uh, privacy is of the utmost importance for a physician. You know, the patient-doctor relationship is sacrosanct. So I changed all the names. I changed uh, certain uh, uh, details about patients and uh, the time period in which I saw the patients. So um, I've been at uh, various hospitals that are publicly available. So people can't go back and try to figure out who my patients are. So all identifying details have been changed uh, to protect patients and their loved ones. Hmm. I'm struck by the very first chapter called My Medical Odyssey, in which you... Oh, wait. No, that's the wrong one. I want to ask you about the woman who was Italian, who uh, owned a restaurant. Yes, Nana. Yes. uh, uh, Assunta Antonia Bruna. uh, uh, 
uh, known as Nonna by her uh, by her her family. She'd opened a restaurant in in one of the suburbs of Boston, and uh, the day she left tomato out of her famous pasta fagioli soup was the moment that her family realized that something was was very wrong. And indeed, what was wrong ultimately was was Alzheimer's. Uh, it's fascinating to hear about this family, the dynamics at play, a very loving, close-knit family, uh, but, uh, but the way that played out ultimately, in a sense, did a disservice uh, to their beloved matriarch uh, as she approached the end of life. Uh, I wonder, if, first of all, maybe you should fill in some of the gaps I've just left in my description. What kind of a family are we talking about and how did they find themselves in, in a really uncomfortable situation in terms of making decisions about uh, uh, Assunta Antonia Bruna or Nonna? This is one of those families that all of us aspire to be loving, caring, every Sunday together, uh, every holiday, every, every event in the children's life, whether it was a baptism, a wedding, um, or a funeral, was celebrated together and with love. And so here you have a very large family, um, and the matriarch, Nona, who had, I forgot how many uh, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and three children of her own. And yet no one throughout this, the course of their lives together no one had actually started the discussion about what was important to her in terms of health care. And so in the earliest stages when Alzheimer's began to appear for her, um, you know, for her it was, she was a wonderful cook, and the ingredients, the way she used to make her pasta fagioli, um, she forgot one time uh, to add the very special ingredients of tomatoes. And that's how uh, the diagnosis was made for her. And yet, uh, when I saw her uh, for the first time, she was admitted to the hospital, and now she was in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease. And so I was stuck trying to figure out, trying to learn who this woman was, trying to learn where her family was in their journey with this illness, because although Alzheimer's affects the patient, uh, the devastation that it produces is also on the family because the family is left with this burden of trying to decide what is best for their mother, and yet no one had ever had a conversation with her about what Nona wanted in terms of a feeding tube, in terms of breathing machines, in terms of all these these aggressive interventions we have in medicine. And so it, it's, it's it's an event, unfortunately, that is replayed thousands of times a day in our hospital system today. Um, there are so many patients with, uh, with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, by the year 2050, there will be 15 million Americans with Alzheimer's dementia. That's an epidemic. Uh, the way uh, we view and have viewed cancer in our, in our culture for the last few decades, I feel uh, the new cancer uh, will be Alzheimer's disease. And so not only did it devastate Nonna, but it devastated her family as they struggled to try to make decisions that they were comfortable with and that honored and respected Nonna. Unfortunately, um, I took care of her over the course of a few weeks, and unfortunately for Nonna, I believe we did uh, numerous things that 
if she actually had this conversation with her daughter and with her uh, with her other children, she never would have wanted. Unfortunately, I do feel that as providers, we tortured Nona, uh, putting her in the ICU, putting her on breathing machine, uh, even inserting a, a feeding tube where if someone had a conversation with her about whether or not these procedures would actually have helped her, she probably would have declined all of them. Hmm. It's, it's something that still haunts me, and I use that word intentionally, haunts me um, every time I meet a patient in the hospital that I'm taking care of with uh, Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. You make a couple of very intriguing points in this chapter. One of them is specifically about the, the matter of a feeding tube and the fact that in, in many cases, uh, and it was certainly the case with this very close-knit Italian family, that there was something about the notion of, of nourishing a loved one that had always been really important to them, that the, the dinner table was a, 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 a central gathering place for the family and you could express your love for, for one another in, in no better way than by... Uh, lavishing care on a wonderful meal. And, uh, and, and so you give us the sense that, that for this family, the notion of, of either removing a, a feeding tube or, or not giving a feeding tube to this woman uh, was in a sense contradictory to one of the most sort of sacred signs of love that had been part of this family. And I think a lot of us don't stop to think about that dynamic perhaps playing a role in why people just cannot bring themselves uh, to make a, 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 a clear and maybe more rational, objective decision about something like a feeding tube. Absolutely. And, and I fail to recognize that emotional balance in that decision. You know, often in medicine, we ask families to make decisions, and we just look at the risks and benefits, right? You know, I, I give them the medical data, I tell them that, you know, in advanced Alzheimer's disease, feeding tubes actually don't help. But what we often fail to understand as doctors is so often these decisions have great emotional import. And there's nothing more fundamental, more loving and caring than for us to express our love than by feeding our our, our loved ones. So even calling it a feeding tube um, predisposes someone to say, well, of course do it. Why wouldn't you do it? You know, the, the teaching moment for me was when I failed to offer the family another option to express their love to their mom, which was hand-feeding her, uh, was, which was giving them, you know, I even do this today, is I say, you know, get that inshore, freeze it, and, you know, you have an inshore lollipop that you can give to someone with advanced Alzheimer's disease that can let you express your love to your mother uh, without having to insert this thing that we call a feeding tube that doesn't help patients. So often in medicine, uh, doctors, we fail to provide people uh, all the available medical options. And uh, that was the huge teaching moment and insight for me uh, on on Nona's, uh, based on Nona's story. But unfortunately, there was a victim in all this, and the victim was Nona. Because uh, we did prolong the dying process. We did prolong pain and suffering for her. And that's something that I have to deal with personally. Um, and part of the book for me was uh, part uh, confession, you know, as well. Because uh, all doctors have stories like this where we often have to think carefully and reflect on 
some of the things that we have done, which uh, often does prolong suffering for patients. Hmm. In this chapter, you also are, are bringing up a very important point about uh, proxies. Uh, when when someone appoints someone else to be their proxy to make medical decisions, and this had this had occurred with this woman and uh, one of her I don't remember if it was one of her daughters, but uh, somebody uh, a nunciata I guess was her name I guess it was a daughter uh, was appointed to be her proxy, but she was in the position of making these decisions on behalf of her beloved mother, without knowing for sure what her mother would have wanted. You write, without guidance from the patient, proxies are burdened with uncertainty. Simply naming a health care proxy is not enough because proxies are not always good at predicting their loved one's wishes for medical care. Uh, this is such a sad scenario where, where someone mistakenly feels like they've done enough simply by filling in a name in that blank on a, on a, on a questionnaire, but uh, they've left out, in a sense, the most important step. Exactly. This is the tragedy of modern healthcare. Is we've been telling our patients, please t- designate someone as your healthcare proxy or healthcare surrogate, um, and yet we fail to tell them. Oh, and by the way, make sure you have a conversation with them about what you would want, because what we know and what many studies have shown is that proxies, your daughter, if you don't have the conversation with the, your daughter, they are no better than ch- at, than chance at choosing what you would have wanted. So if you're going to name someone, whether it's your son, your daughter, or a friend, um, as your proxy, you better be having that conversation with them. You know, I tell this often to my elderly patients, look, this is a gift you can give to your son and daughter. Tell them what's important to you. Tell them what sort of medical decisions you would make if you're not able to make these decisions on yourself, because you don't want to be a burden to your kids. You want to give them a gift, and the gift is telling them what's important to you. Hmm. That's that, that a very important point is certainly made in the third chapter of the book in which you talk about uh, uh, a Hispanic gentleman by the name of Miguel Sanchez. And, uh, and one, of the, one of the points made in this chapter, which I hadn't really even stopped to ponder, is how painful it is when perhaps a spouse realizes that their own spouse has not shared with them information that would be incredibly important uh, for making good decisions in this moment, and that, in a sense, it can be, on a very personal level, very painful to realize that, uh, that, that your own husband or your own wife has not shared things with you that they shared with their doctor. Uh, can you say a word about that? Yeah, it's something that we see all too often. Here's a, a, a family, a couple that had been married for close to 50 years, uh, they were high school sweethearts. They had um, gone all around the world. They they had a daughter together. Um, you know, they made decisions about financial decisions or about what's for dinner tonight. And yet, when it came to medical care, no one had this discussion. They never talked about it. And so, on a prior admission, when I had taken care of this patient, he had told me what was important to him and the sort of things he did or and did not want from healthcare, and yet he never shared that information, despite my pleas with him, uh, with his wife. And so when the event occurred and uh, he was no longer able to make decisions, um, his wife gave me that blank stare and said, well, we never talked about this. Uh, I have to talk to my daughter. And unfortunately, 
their daughter uh, did not live close by. They did not have uh, many conversations about these sort of things. And so the daughter did what, what a lot of kids do, which is please do everything. Hmm. And unfortunately, we did do everything, even though uh, the patient, Mr. Sanchez, had told me um, he did not want these uh, procedures done. Uh, but, you know, as a physician, I have to honor and respect what the family tells me because, uh, you know, although I had had him as a, as a patient in the past, um, I, you know, the assumption is that the family knows the patient best. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as a hospitalist, the doctor taking care of patients in the hospital, we often are strangers to our patients. And so uh, we defer almost always to the family. Right. This is one of the most fascinating points in the book, I think, is when you talk about this all-too-common phenomenon of, of a child who lives far away in another state in a sense, uh, dropping into this situation and, uh, and, and more often than not making the pronouncement, do everything you can. And uh, when you kind of mentioned this situation to a senior physician at the hospital where you worked, uh, she said, oh, you mean the daughter from California syndrome. <laughs> and evidently this is actually a term that often gets used to describe uh, this this situation, but you go on to, to to describe how sometimes by its very nature, it will be the so-called daughter from California who will uh, sort of enter the scene with, in a sense, an, an emotional agenda or emotional baggage all their own that that probably has no place in the making of good decisions about the well-being of the patient in question. Absolutely. This is a pretty common occurrence uh, to the point where, you know, medicine came up with a syndrome for it. It usually occurs when you have a patient who has an advanced illness where everybody on the team agrees that uh, focusing on quality of life and comfort, uh, aggressive comfort, is the right thing to do by the patient. Um, however, uh, a, a, a child who hasn't seen mom, let's say, in a few years, who's missed a bunch of Thanksgivings and Christmases and, um, you know, is the only next of kin, and we call that usually daughter who lives in California, um, says, no, 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 I need you to do everything. I'm coming to see mom. And what happens is we do everything, and then the daughter says, please keep on doing everything, and it's her way of dealing with the guilt the emotional baggage of not having been there for mom when mom needed her for years before this critical situation arose. Uh, of note, in California, they call this the girl, the daughter from New York syndrome, but uh, this is this is actually something that we see all too often in medicine, where children who have, for a variety of reasons, have lost touch with their loved one, and now in the final throes of, a, of an illness. They try to make amends, try to atone for their lack of attention to mom or dad, and insist that uh, the healthcare team do everything. Hmm. And of course, you're making a very good point here. It, it, in a sense, underscores the importance of the primary point of your book, which is that conversations need to take place before you ever get to this point, so that uh, at a critical moment when critically important decisions need to be made, they're not going to be made under the scenario that we're describing right here with the so-called daughter from California. 
Correct. The worst time to have these conversations is when the patient is sick, when it's uh, when you're in the emergency room, or when you're not feeling well. The ideal time is when you're feeling great, when you're running around, when you don't have any illnesses. Now, remember, this is not a one-time conversation, but a process over time. These are not one-offs. These are multiple conversations. And so if we start this process, if we, in our U.S. healthcare system, make this a routine part of what doctors do, and when we start these conversations in your 30s and 40s, well, then by the time you're in your 80s and 90s and you're facing these issues, well, you will have already thought about what's important to you. And these terms like healthcare proxy, advanced directives, will you'll understand what it means, and it won't be the first time that you're hearing about these things. It's just honoring and respecting people's wishes by giving them the opportunity to reflect and think about things. And uh, hopefully people will, will view the book as a call to, a call to action and uh, so that we could change our healthcare system to honor and respect um, our patients' wishes. Hmm. Do you have time for me to ask you about just a couple more patients? Absolutely. Great. Let me reintroduce you. I'm speaking with Dr. Angelo Volandis. His book is called The Conversation, A Revolutionary Plan for End-of-Life Care, in which he recounts some of the actual experiences that uh, he has had over the years in in working with various patients and their families as they have confronted the end of life. And again, this is uh, not a book about death and dying so much as a book about living, trying to preserve uh, the quality of life for various patients, even under the most difficult of circumstances. I think because in my other life, I am a college professor. I I read with great interest the fourth chapter, uh, which uh, is about a college professor. Uh, you call her Helen Thompson. Uh, who unfortunately finds herself uh, uh, suffering from a a brain tumor. And uh, this is a really, really interesting story, and I appreciate how you you tell it uh, so vividly. Uh, Give our listeners a sense of of what Helen was facing and uh, the difficulties which you were confronting as, as her doctor at this moment in time. Absolutely. So Helen Thompson... Uh, was a was a professor of uh, English who had uh, brain cancer. And when she was first diagnosed, um, they weren't sure what the cause was, uh, but over the next few months, they eventually realized that it was a brain tumor. And for nine months, she had seen many oncologists, primary care doctors, other specialists, and not a single person ever asked her what was important to her in her life, and what were the uh, what were her wishes in terms of care, uh, especially as the tumor advanced? I mean, despite uh, their best efforts, uh, it was a fatal disease. And nine months later, she was admitted to my hospital, and now I was taking care of her, and we had to make some immediate decisions about what to do. Um, she had tried chemotherapy and radiation, but unfortunately, her tumor was progressing. And so I had to ask her about questions such as whether or not she would want PR attempted or whether or not she would want to be placed on a breathing machine. And although I did my very best to start this conversation, um, she gave me that sort of blank look that I think a lot of patients give you when you use these fancy words and talk to them about things that they don't have much experience with. And that's when I naively, I think, uh, asked her, I asked her, would you mind taking a walk with me to the intensive care unit so I can actually show you some of these things? 
Um, it was in the evening, so it wasn't a big deal to take a patient in a wheelchair and bring her around the intensive care unit. I, I showed her a few patients who were there and who were on breathing machines, and uh, she got a sense of the place. I mean, she got to hear the beeps and buzzes, see the colorful monitors, to understand what I was talking about when I said ICU-level care. Now, as fate would have it, I obviously didn't plan on it, but there was a code blue that was um, happening in the intensive care unit, and I tried to bring them out of the ICU, but they actually saw what CPR actually looks like. And when we went back to her room, she looked at me and she said, you know, Angelo, I understood those words before when you were saying ICU-level care, CPR. I mean, I am a professor of English after all, but I had no idea that's what you were talking about. It doesn't look like that on television. And uh, that's when it occurred to me that so often in medicine and in healthcare, even if we try to have these conversations with our, with our patients, um, a lot of people think that the reality is what they watch on television where most people on TV shows today survive CPR and everybody looks like George Clooney on a breathing machine. You know, the reality is very different. And that's when it occurred to me for the first time that, gosh, we could try to have great conversations, but even after a really good conversation, patients may not understand all that's involved. And so um, with uh, my colleagues, what we started to do was to start filming some of the things that are happening in our healthcare system so that we can show people videos to help empower themselves with the knowledge that they need to get more informed. And as part of the book, we created a short video. It's uh, on YouTube. It's at theconversationbook.org, so theconversationbook.org. And it's a short five-minute video that tells people, these are the questions you need to ask yourself. Oh, and by the way, these are your medical options. This is what it looks like. So we talk about CPR and breathing machines and care in the hospital, but also what it means to have aggressive, comfort-oriented care focusing on quality of life. So our hope is, and my hope is, that Professor Thompson's experience through the ICU is captured in a short video so that everybody can understand their options. I, I like to, some people have described it as Khan Academy but for medicine. <laughs> you know, if we make these videos available to everybody, um, it's quick. It's quickly scalable so that we can make sure our patients and families are able to navigate uh, this crazy healthcare system that we've designed where people walk into hospitals and don't know their medical options or people with a serious illness aren't aware of all their choices. So Professor Thompson helped me understand uh, to make it uh, visually uh, available to people because we're a visually lit society. If a picture speaks a thousand words, uh, videos speak hundreds of thousands of words. Right. In this chapter, you also, I think, make a very good observation about hospice care. And after taking that tour of the ICU, uh, Professor Thompson and her, and her husband made the decision that she should go into hospice care. And so she ended up dying at home at the age of, of 56. Uh, you write at one point, when medical care cannot provide a cure, Hospice reorients the care towards comfort. This does not mean, however, that the healthcare system has given up on the patient. I think this is such an important point to make, and it's probably an important point even for some doctors to better understand that that uh, that we should not think about uh, 
making the decision to go into hospice as some sort of surrender, although it probably feels like that or, or, or it feels like the wrong kind of surrender. I mean, sometimes uh, surrender is, 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 is the most noble thing that one can do. And uh, I appreciate the fact that you, you speak about hospice care in this way, which also reminds us that it's not that the medical uh, community is, is, is giving up on a patient, but, but refocusing their efforts on behalf of that patient. Absolutely. For me personally, hospice means I become even more aggressive because I am aggressively focusing on comfort and quality of life. And that takes a lot more effort, to be quite honest, than if you're going to do CPR or breathing machines. It means making sure you meet the patient's need, not only on a physical level with pain and suffering and making sure that you're alleviating that, but also on an emotional level, on a spiritual level. This is aggressive focus on life good life, good quality life. And the one really interesting thing that I spent a good deal of time in the book talking about is that there is now emerging research that suggests that patients who choose hospice actually live longer than patients who do not choose hospice, which is completely uh, contradictory to the general thought out there that if you choose hospice, you'll die earlier. Actually, no. Most patients who choose hospice live as long, if not longer, than patients who do not choose hospice. And what we think is going on is that a lot of the medical procedures in patients who are seriously ill and get these procedures in our hospitals actually might lead to earlier deaths due to medical errors. And so that is one of the things that I'm hoping to dispel out there, the myth that if you choose hospice, your doctor will abandon you or that you're more likely to die earlier. It's actually the reverse. And so what I hope is that people make the decision that they're comfortable with, but that they also know the facts about hospice. Mm. I also appreciate the fact that in this same chapter, you say quite forthrightly, hospice is not for everyone. Because I do think uh, it's tempting to paint with too broad a brush. And, uh, and the fact is that there are people out there uh, who, for whatever reason, uh, want to fight to the very, very end. And in some cases that fight to the end actually yields them some benefit. Uh, and it is a mistake to pretend that those instances don't occur or that this question is uh, not more complicated than we sometimes try to make it. Uh, it is not that everyone should do hospice, but that everyone should understand what hospice is and that it is available to them. Absolutely. I think it's important that everybody know their options. What I don't think doctors should do is ever to make a decision for a patient. Many people ask me, well, what's the right decision for each of these seven stories? And I say the right decision is what my patient decides once they're fully informed. If a patient wants hospice care and they want to focus on their quality of life, then God bless them, they should receive that. But if a patient wants to focus on aggressive life-prolonging interventions for whatever reason, as long as they know what the risks and benefits are, then as a physician, I will honor and respect that. So I want to be clear. We should be very careful. Um, hospice is not for everyone. Hospice is for a lot of people, but there are going to be some people who prefer not to have hospice and choose other uh, interventions. And the, the one of the final stories that I talk about in the book is about a young mom 
who had a widely metastatic breast cancer. And uh, to be quite honest, from a medical perspective, from my perspective, uh, out of the patients that I had taken care of, once they had reached the stage that she was at, uh, not a single one of my patients had survived their hospital stay. And yet I had a conversation with her. Her husband was there. And uh, I actually showed them uh, a short video explaining to them what the risks and benefits were. And she chose to press on, uh, despite my, my, my own uh, revealing to her that I, I wasn't sure that these procedures were going to be helpful. Uh, but she looked at me and she said, look, I have three young kids at home. And if I'm that one in a, in a hundred or a thousand or a 10,000, whatever the number, the odds are, um, I want to be there for the next, for her, it was the next Easter dinner. And so for her, it made sense to pursue, to, to carry on and do her best despite the chances. And I indeed honored her decision. Uh, you know, unfortunately, she didn't survive that hospital admission and she didn't make it to that Easter dinner. But you know, as a physician and as a person, I felt that I honored her wishes. And for her and her husband and her three kids, um, it made sense to, for that decision. So, you know, let's be clear. Everybody's an individual. We need to hear everyone's story, and we need to help people make decisions that they will live and die with. In our last couple minutes, I want to just touch briefly on the fact that one of the chapters involves your own father being hospitalized with a stroke. And I so appreciate the story you tell about that moment in the hospital when you hear for the first time uh, in interaction between the doctor and your mother that their wishes are DNR, do not resuscitate, if if it should come to that. And you write, it's as though you'd never heard those three letters before in your whole life, because uh, even though you'd dealt with that hundreds of times by that point in time, never with someone from your own family. I I Clearly, this was a moment in which all of this took on profoundly different and deeper meaning for you. Absolutely. You know, I tell people that I wrote, I wrote this book not only as a doctor, but as a caregiver. I take care of my dad, who has many medical issues, um, and I recount the first time that um, I found out what his wishes were. You would think, here is a doctor who whose research and who takes care of very sick patients and talks about how everybody should have the conversation. And yet he himself never raised this issue with his own father. And I think that's true for many of us in medicine. We often distance ourselves from the reality that we too will die and our loved ones will die. So the first time that I had this conversation with my own father was when my mother was telling uh, another physician that was taking care of my dad, what his wishes were. And it was the first time that I realized that someday, indeed, my dad will die, and someday my mom will die. And so it, um, it really affected me in a way that the hundreds of conversations that I had had with my own patients, um, I, had, I realized that I never had my, my own conversation with my parents. And, uh, you know, it was a very, very difficult time for me as I struggled to understand their wishes, uh, even though um, I, I wasn't um, sure that I would have made the same decision. 
but I wanted to honor and respect their wishes because at the end of the day, that's what's important mm-hmm. is making sure that people's voices are preserved and that our healthcare system honors and respects those voices. This book is certainly a wonderful step in the right direction to a whole lot of people understanding all of this better. And it's full of very practical advice on how these conversations can take place. The book, again, is called The Conversation, A Revolutionary Plan for End-of-Life Care, published by Bloomsbury. Dr. Angelo Valandis, thank you so much for writing this marvelous book and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much.